It's Friday, May 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The stem cell industry is booming in the United States, and while some legitimate medical uses have been discovered, there is a growing industry of clinics and doctors offering poorly understood products, often without much regulation. Patients are paying thousands of dollars for unproven treatments that claim to heal a variety of ailments, with some stem cell injections costing between $5,000 and $10,000. Often these stem cells are amniotic stem cells obtained via donation after a woman has given birth, and that's a very important distinction. Caroline Chen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica, joins us for the Birth Tissue Profiteers. Next, the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee has subpoenaed Donald Trump Jr., to answer questions about previous testimony before Senate investigators in relation to the Russia investigation. The president has said that he is surprised by the subpoena and Senator Richard Burr, who chairs the committee, is facing GOP backlash. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for what this is all about. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And he said, here are some things that you could consider using it for arthritis, tendonitis, psoriasis, lupus, hair loss, face wrinkles, scarring, erectile dysfunction, heart failure, asthma, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, kidney failure, like just Everything. about anything you could think yeah. about. Joining us now is Caroline Chen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. We're going to be talking about stem cells and the stem cell industry and how it's booming in the United States right now. While there have been some legitimate medical uses that have been discovered by using stem cells, there's this underlying industry that is offering poorly understood products, very little regulation, and there could be a danger to people using these. The number of clinics that were offering these unproven stem cell treatments has grown from 12 clinics in 2009 to more than 700 in 2017 and possibly even more since then. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with uh, stem cell treatments and this industry that's growing. I got interested in working on this story because I saw this paper that was counting stem cell clinics. And as you mentioned, they've just exploded in the U.S. And I thought, how are there so many? Why are there so many? That's what got me started in the first place. So just to be clear for our listeners here, my story is about for-profit stem cell clinics that offer these stem cell treatments to people, often saying that they will treat a huge variety of diseases, basically anything you can think of, usually for $5,000 plus per injection. And I got really interested in a specific subset, which are made from birth tissue. And they're typically called amniotic stem cell treatments or sometimes umbilical cord stem cell treatments. And really was curious about the supply chain. How did these get made? What are people claiming about them? Is there any science behind them? That's how I got started. You went to a presentation that was done by a man named Dr. David Green, put on by uh, Atlas Medical Center, which was a local clinic that specializes in pain treatment. How did this seminar go? How did people react to the news? I went out to Texas to attend a seminar, which was being hosted by a local clinic. And the guy who was giving the seminar was a guy called Dr. David Green. He was introduced as a retired orthopedic surgeon. And he was selling amniotic stem cell treatments. He told the group there, there were about two dozen folks in the room, most of them were elderly, that his product had about 10 million live stem cells in them. And he said, here are some things that you could consider using it for arthritis, tendonitis, psoriasis, lupus, hair loss, face wrinkles, scarring, erectile dysfunction, heart failure, asthma, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, kidney failure, like 
just about anything you could think about. Yeah. And then he said over 85% of patients benefit exceptionally from the treatment. And so he was really selling it. And you could tell that the people were really enthralled by his presentation. And I just had this really vivid moment where this woman who was sitting, you know, the row in front of me just like pumped her fist into the ears and she goes, stem cells, you know, and she was just so excited about it. And I was so worried for her. Yeah. And people that are in these vulnerable stages of their lives, they're in pain. They're looking for anything that will help possibly avoid surgeries, things like that. So when something like this comes up, they're going to get excited for it. Absolutely. I think what was really striking to me, having talked to a bunch of patients, as I've reported, is how much people are willing to spend for a little bit of hope. Typically, these clinics charge $5,000 plus for an injection. So if you do two knees, that's going to be $10,000. Some of them offer it as an intravenous treatment for a more systemic disease like lupus or multiple sclerosis. And typically, that starts at like $10,000. And patients are paying for this. Tell us a little bit about the supply chain. How do they get these stem cells? How do the clinics get it? And how is it all administered? I was really interested in the supply chain here because I was like, who's in this business? You know, why is this business exploding? So what I found was it starts with women who are asked to donate their birth tissue in the maternity ward. And we tried to find out what are they told. And we interviewed actually a lot of parents who have donated birth tissue in the past. And the problem we realized is that when you're just about to give birth, oftentimes it's like a few hours before a C-section, somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you know, your placenta would be medical waste. Otherwise, would you donate it? You're not really in the mindset to ask very careful questions. So we asked a lot of parents, like, did you ask, could this go for commercial use? Could somebody make money out of this? They're like, oh, no, we like, didn't think to ask that question. You know, or like, did you sign a consent form? And, and a lot of them were like, well, maybe I signed something, but I don't have a copy anymore. So it's like a very vulnerable moment where parents are pretty focused on like giving birth to a child. And there are very legitimate uses for some birth tissue. For example, umbilical cords have blood stem cells that can be used for the treatment of blood cancers like leukemia. That's proven. That's a good reason to donate your umbilical cord. But we realized that really parents weren't able to tell us, you know, where their birth tissue actually ended up going. So clearly some of them are somehow getting their way to these stem cell manufacturers. And as I did my reporting, what I found was, let's say you get a placenta for free. So what I was told by industry insiders is usually these manufacturers can get 200 to 400, sometimes even more vials of products from one placenta. And it costs them about $50 per vial to make. And then they turn around and sell that vial to a clinic for about $1,000. So that's a big profit margin for the right. manufacturers. Then the clinics are saying, you know, I bought this for $1,000. I'm going to charge you $5,000, $6,000. So they're also making a pretty steep profit on that one vial. So just the economics showed me why this is so popular. Oh, yeah. It's all starting with something you're getting for free and you're just making money on top of money. Let's distinguish what we're talking about. Also, we're talking about stem cells. A lot of the times when people think I'm going to get some type of stem cell treatment, they think about embryos. They think about embryonic stem cells. Mm -hmm. And those do have the potential to turn into a lot of other different cells. Those are the ones that really could be beneficial, but these are amniotic stem cells. These have already formed into certain cells. These aren't really the ones that are going to be able to regrow tissue and do a lot of these major life-changing things that some of these clinics are saying it's going to do. One thing that I realized as I reported was that the word stem cell gets used so broadly to cover so many different types of stem cells that it's really, really confusing for a lay person who's basically anybody who's not a stem cell cell biologist. It's really hard for you to know 
one stem cell from another. And that term gets thrown around so much that it's kind of acquired this like magical aura where you hear stem cell and you think, oh, regenerate everything. And you don't really realize that there are many types of stem cells. So as you said, embryonic stem cells is what we've all started out as. And embryonic stem cells are the only stem cells that naturally can turn into every type of cell in the body. But by the time the baby is formed, your stem cells are stratified. So you have stem cells in your skin. They can form different types of skin cells. You have brain stem cells that can regenerate different types of brain cells. But like your blood stem cells aren't going to spontaneously turn into skin. Your skin stem cells aren't going to just turn into a kidney cell. So they're kind of tracked. And so I think what a lot of these birth tissue stem cell salespeople do is that they borrow the properties of an embryonic stem cell and apply it to their products. So, you know, I was at the seminar and, and the guy said, this can turn into anything you need it to become. And that is not scientifically proven. And there haven't been the studies to show that. Yeah. A lot of times what's happening is these clinics, these doctors, they're blurring the science. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the article also, they're citing other studies where they might've been done in very small sample sizes and something could have mm -hmm. happened, but they're kind of extrapolating that and saying, well, see, this is exactly what it could do for you. So they're blurring right. the science on a lot of these issues. Typically, if you get a drug that has been approved by the FDA, it has been through pretty large human trials. So say like you're taking a blood pressure medication, there have been trials of hundreds of people to prove that it actually makes a difference to blood pressure, that there's a benefit and that it's safe. A lot of these products sold at stem cell clinics have never been through this type of trial before. So I can't tell you that it's going to help you because there's no data on it. We just simply don't actually know what they're going to do. Where is the FDA on this? You mentioned Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, and he said that the department was very lax in enforcing any rules related to this at all. I think the FDA in the last couple of years has finally realized that this is a big problem. And they've taken some steps in the last couple of years to start to regulate this industry. But the problem is they've left it for so long that the problem has gotten so big that, you know, former Commissioner Scott Gottlieb did say to me, like, they're in a position now where they've got a big problem. And he said it's hard to step in and actually apply the regulation now. So early on when this field was starting, I think the FDA saw it as not a priority because there were a few number of clinics and, you know, they were doing things that were relatively, relatively less risky, like saying knee injections. So they kind of left the industry alone. And now like 10 years later, people are giving injections into people's eyes, into people's spines. They're giving it to people IV and the FDA is now having to play catch up. Talk about some of the dangers that have arisen as some of these stem cells have been tainted with bacteria. Sometimes, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, um, they, some of the doctors say, oh, there's 10 million live stem cells in this. A lot of time, more than half of them have died because they, they mm -hmm. often they, they'll freeze them. They'll ship them to the clinics. And in that whole process, a lot of them have died. One of the things that I've tried to make clear here is that if it's not FDA approved, you don't know what is in the vial. Right. You don't know what you're getting. So even hypothetically, if birth tissue had some therapeutic benefit, you don't know what you are getting. And so there have been some infections. There was a case in California where a California-based distributor had a batch of amniotic stem cells that were infected with bacteria, including like E. coli, and at least 12 patients got those cells. And I talked to the daughter of a grandmother grandmother, an old lady, a grandmother in Texas who had received those cells and in a spinal injection and she turned septic 
and had wow. to be life flighted to a major hospital. And she was weeks in rehab. And so it can go really badly because there is not that much oversight. And so you're really taking a gamble, not just with your wallet, but potentially with your health. The last question I have on this, because... You know, this is just a big warning. You should always really do your due diligence on whatever these procedures are, who's administering them. A lot of times these doctors are not the best qualified anymore. You mm-hmm. mentioned Dr. Green at the beginning. He lost his license to practice medicine in 2009. They often tout a lot of people that have received the treatments and say, oh, I feel great. I feel mm-hmm. really good now. Is that the case? Do people, obviously there are some danger stories, but do people say that they feel better after receiving some of these treatments? There definitely have been anecdotal stories where people say that they've been helped by amniotic stem cell treatment. But the question is why? We don't know why because we're not doing the studies. So as I said, maybe there's something therapeutic in birth tissue that can be found. But until we actually do the studies, we're not going to know was this a real effect Was it a placebo effect? What was it in this tissue that actually helped patients? So as I mentioned, there's some researchers I've talked to who have examined some of these products, and they found that most of the cells are often dead or already dying. So they're like, well, it's not stem cells that's helping you then. It could be something else that's in the vial that's helping you, but we don't know what it is. So I think this is a case where there is an area that could maybe have some promise, but the marketing has gotten so far ahead of what we actually know scientifically. Caroline Chen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. Well, I was very surprised. I saw Richard Burr saying there was no collusion two or three weeks ago. He went outside and somebody asked him, no, there's no collusion. We found no collusion. He's now testified for 20 hours or something, a massive amount of time. The Mueller report came out. That's the Bible. The Mueller report came out and they said he did nothing wrong. Joining us now is Steph Kite. Reporter for Axios, Donald Trump Jr. has been subpoenaed to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee. The interesting thing about that is that it's a Republican-led committee. So this pits this Republican committee against the Republican president's eldest son. What do we know about this subpoena? What they really want to look at is some of the things that Trump Jr., that Don Jr. said about his knowledge of plans to build a Trump hotel in Moscow, comparing what he said to members of Congress versus some of the things that he told people who are part of the Mueller probe. I believe there's some concern that maybe what he told Mueller differed in significant ways from what he told members of Congress, and that is in part also due to some things that Michael Cohen said Don Jr. actually knew more than he originally said he did. And so we know that that's part of the reason why they're subpoenaing him. Yeah, Donald Trump Jr. actually did an interview with Fox News's Laura Ingram back in January, and he was downplaying the knowledge that he had about this Trump Tower project in Moscow. He said, you know, ultimately it was Michael Cohen trying to get a deal done. So he was throwing it off on Michael Cohen. And we know Michael Cohen had lied to the investigators in the, for the Mueller report also. So it's kind of their word against each other. It's also interesting because despite Mitch McConnell saying that this Russian collusion thing is a done deal, it's all over. Robert Mueller also didn't press charges or anything against Donald Trump Jr. The Senate investigators are still looking into some of this stuff. One thing to know, the committee sent Trump Jr. the subpoena several weeks before Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that 
it was time to move on from the Russia probe and all that. So that did not come after Mitch McConnell said those things and saying that we need to wrap this up. But that is something that we're seeing from a lot of Republicans, that they feel like Democrats keep bringing this back, that they keep bringing up the Mueller probe. And I think a lot of Republicans in the White House, and I would argue probably some reporters even, were hoping that with the release of this report, release of the Mueller report, we would kind of have some solid conclusions that we would feel like this was all kind of wrapped up. But instead, we've seen this spiral out into many more questions and many more investigations. Um, There's still a lot of questions that seem to be unanswered. And we're seeing, what's interesting is we're seeing bipartisan support for getting more information, even on the House side. The House Intelligence Committee has also jointly subpoenaed some information from the Justice Department that would involve the Mueller report. They're asking for foreign intelligence information from the Mueller probe, as well as surrounding materials that were influential with writing the Mueller report. And that also was Republicans and Democrats wanting more information, obviously for very different reasons. But we are seeing some bipartisan support for getting more information on this report but we're seeing the White House obviously being very unwilling to cooperate with these efforts. The Senate Intelligence Committee is chaired by Senator Richard Burr and Senator Mark Warner is the vice chair. So they do pride themselves on running a very bipartisan committee there. What kind of criticism is Senator Richard Burr receiving for subpoenaing the president's son? Certainly lots of Republicans are shocked that they're having to deal with Republicans wanting to drag this stuff out even further. But one thing that's interesting to note about Richard Burr is that he's not running for re-election, and he has often prided himself on running a committee that has been largely bipartisan and resistant to these outside pressures that we're seeing from the Republican Party and the White House right now. So it's a question of whether these pressures even get to him or if he just moves forward and says, this is what we need to do, this is what I feel like we need to pursue and goes ahead with asking Don Jr. to come before the committee and legally forcing him to give answers to some of these questions they have. The president has already responded to this as well. He said he was very surprised by this whole thing. The president did speak on this, saying that he was pretty surprised again emphasizing the fact that there was no collusion. And that's the line that we keep seeing over and over again from the White House, that the focus should be that there was no collusion found after the Mueller investigation. And that's the line they keep playing. But of course, there are questions around obstruction. But even there, we saw the president downplay the possibility of obstruction, saying essentially, well, if there's no crime, what would we be trying to hide? And saying that that's the reason why we should drop all this nonsense and stop subpoenas and move on from this. But I think that's highly unlikely given where we're going so far. I think the last few times that the president's son did testify and and all this testimony they gave was all behind closed doors. I mean, there's no indication that if uh, he does come through and testify again, if it will be an open hearing. I've heard reports that he's going to try to fight this subpoena also. So we'll see where it all takes us. But uh, just an interesting note that they're trying to call him before uh, to testify again. Don Jr. has testified before and has spent hours, as they've stressed, hours testifying to Congress and giving everything that he knows and telling them and cooperating. And that, that's the line that they're continuing to push, saying, look, we have cooperated. We're not trying to hide anything. Why do we have to come back and testify again? And I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is that the Mueller investigation, while it was focused on this idea of collusion, looking at whether the Trump administration, the Trump campaign 
and Russians were working together during the 2016 presidential election. It's become much more than that because there were so many people involved, because there were so many hearings, because there were congressional hearings alongside the Mueller investigation. It means a lot of people were questioned and it opens up the doors for issues of perjury. It opens up the doors for there to have been proof that someone lied to Congress. And that's kind of what we're looking at here. And that's really the essence of why they're asking Don Jr. back. It truly does never end. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.